Look, you've heard us talk about Fangoria. You know the drill. They have a kick-ass magazine filled with detailed articles from a diverse roster of talented genre writers that you can only get in print form. Both Scott and I are very talented writers and have contributed to this magazine, so we know what we're talking about here. Being a part of the Fangoria family has its benefits, chief of which is our listeners can get a hefty 25% off their annual subscription if they go to Fangoria.com and plug in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout. Also, it's award season, and Fangoria is hosting its own annual awards called the Chainsaw Awards, voted on by you, the discerning horror fan. So if you think Lee Whannell's The Invisible Man is the best horror movie of the year, or if you think the Lovecraftian insanity of Underwater edges it out, you can cast your vote by visiting bit.ly slash chainsaw awards. And now, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today we are joined by an actress and a writer. You'll know her from her very impressive genre work, including her incredibly emotional turn as Theodora Crane in The Haunting of Hill House and Maddie in Hush, uh, which is still one of my favorites, by the way. I love that one. Uh, as well as appearances in Gerald's Game, Oculus, and most recently in The Haunting of Bly Manor. KingCast listeners will also remember her dynamite episode of this very show where she tackled one of King's most uh, obscure titles, A Good Marriage, and blew us all away with her insight and deep-cut King nerdiness. And now she's back, and she's picked a banger to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kate Siegel back to the KingCast stage. Hello, happy to be here. Thanks for oh, having me. Oh, we're happy to have you back. You, he, he's not lying either. That, um, that good marriage episode you did, that was early enough in the run where we weren't sure how like a, a smaller title might play, you know, mm-hmm. you, cause you assume like, well, the bigger the title, the more people are, are familiar with it. will want to hear it. And that's, that's one of our more popular, uh, episodes. Actually, people love you and apparently they love a, a good marriage. Thank you so much. I think reading is such a personal thing that when you get a chance to talk about your internal universe with other people who read the same books as you, it kind of catches you on fire. And I think your listeners, it, maybe if they hadn't seen Good Marriage, because basically no one did, spoiler alert, not that great, um, they were able to kind of tap into that feeling of being disappointed when a movie doesn't live up to its book. Totally. Which might yeah. be relevant here in a few minutes with the, yeah. with the title we're, yeah. we're, we're talking I mean, about. I am on a hunt to figure out what the secret sauce is to turn a Stephen King adaptation into a successful movie. I'm constantly punching my husband about that. Like, tell me, tell me what your secret is. And he's like, yeah, he's- looks Kate. And I'm like, well, look at Firestarter, for example, which we will. Yeah. And and not, not to, to jump too far ahead already, but Firestarter is a, a great example because it is so lazily the book the the oh movie is and, and and yet that doesn't work so the so mike's answer of like oh it's just in the book is absolutely horseshit or else firestarter would be a classic <laughs> yeah that's right flanagan we're calling you horseshit in the first two minutes maybe yeah. you'll listen to this episode hope it was worth yeah. it mike 
Yeah, mate. Yeah, he's he's just protecting his secrets. He has some secrets that he doesn't want to give out. That's what it is. Yeah, he's got some formula worked out, man. It's uh, <laughs> something nefarious is going on over there. But um, <laughs> we, I, I guess, we should talk about what what have you been up to since we last uh, talked to you. You, you uh, yeah. Well, when you guys talked to me, we hadn't. I don't think we'd even started shooting Midnight Mass. We I think had, you were oh, a few yeah. weeks away from it or something. Yeah, we had done prep, and now we're done. We wrapped it. And uh, it's in editing right now, hitting Netflix and your streaming boxes, which is something the kids say, I guess. Right. Boxes. Uh, October, mid-October. They say streaming boxes? No, I have no idea. I'm very (laughs) old. I don't know what kids say. Oh, okay. I was like, we got to be able to improve on that. <laughs> the only thing kids do now are they dance on TikTok and and they artificially inflate GameStop stock. That's all, I all they do. I cannot get enough of that. That yeah. tweet is so genius, and the memes it's created about how like the rich are like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, 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 not those bootstraps. Those bootstraps are only for the rich people. No, no, no. <laughs> I yeah. love that it's 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 matching the chaotic energy of 2020 news stories. But this is one with the you know again the same level of chaotic energy. But I can enjoy this one, you know, and I don't feel like my soul dying when I when I read about it, which is which yeah. is really fun, you know. That's a nice nice change of pace. I just so have a, a real hard on for the eat the rich energy. This whole thing has. I'm into it. Right. It's it, that that sentiment has always existed to some degree, but I feel it growing and growing and growing, and I love it. Hope to see more of that from. Uh, uh, our younger listeners and uh, ourselves as we as we move through the brave year of our Lord, twenty twenty one. Yeah. Um. So, how was the shoot on on Midnight Mass? It was wonderful. I I say that with a little bit of embarrassment because with a whole lot of hard work from a whole lot of people, we managed to get through all of production without shutting down once, and That's so rad. it created a sense of teamwork and community that isn't always there on a set with such a big cast and crew. Sure. Are people that I have not seen their faces to this day. I don't know what the <laughs> I was going to say the sense of camaraderie must be a little bit off because of the, you know, shooting restrictions and, and what have you. You would think so, but it, it had that feeling of going through something impossible together. Yeah. I can totally imagine that. What can you tell us about the series at this point? Well, I don't want to ruin any of the fun stuff for you, but I can tell you it is about a small fishing community that has been devastated by environmental and economic troubles that a new priest comes to town and miracles start happening. Got to tell you, I don't like it when a new priest comes to town. It's always trouble. Love a new priest. It's actually a romantic comedy. It's real fun. Um, A lot of (laughs) will they, won't they, a meet cute or two. Yeah. Everyone ends up happy. It ends in a wedding. Just the title of Midnight Mass. Tell you know, I'm picturing, you know, a picnic and mm-hmm. you know, sunshine and um nothing certainly nothing sinister. So oh, all of this tracks. Not. Just a lot of like fairy lights and a bonfire and everyone talking about their pleasant childhoods with a slow push, you know. Kids running through sprinklers, you know, just a really, you know That was a fun romp. Yeah. I just out of curiosity, um, I've never been to Vancouver. I've heard good things. You like Vancouver? I love Vancouver. Yeah. Okay, love. I was talking to our guest, Eric. No, I want to talk. No, no, please, please, please do. No, Eric, we're here for you. 
Yeah. How do you like Vancouver? What's your favorite part of Vancouver? <laughs> My favorite part of Vancouver is that every time that I've gone to Vancouver, uh, I get asked to buy drugs on the street, which is wow. funny because because it is the <laughs> like the most quaint like peaceful, like very Portland-ish. It reminds me a lot of like Austin and Wellington, like my favorite cities in the world. And and uh, and yet for whatever reason, every single time I go to Vancouver, somebody, no matter which part of the city I'm in, somebody will ask me if I want drugs. And I remember one guy once when I was doing the very nerdy thing of looking for the location uh, that um, Bastion fought his uh, bullies on in NeverEnding Story. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew they sh- shot there and I found that street and there was a dude, of course, on the corner. And this was the second or third time this trip where he looked at me and he just goes, weed, cocaine, cocaine, weed. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? Me? I'm just looking for never ending story locations. And I'm definitely not your your target audience, my man. You've got a bat you know, t-shirt on and shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, moon child, moon child forever hat. Yeah. It's legal here now, so you can just buy it from stores. You don't need to have a, a stranger on a shooting location offer you drugs. Just weed, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, okay. He he mentioned Coke as well, and I was about to be Oh, like, no, Coke's never uh, going to be legal. Too good. Vancouver. Things like that don't get to be legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Vancouver's going bonkers up there. What are they doing? <laughs> but again, I want to, I want to, it's not like, like Toronto has some seedy areas in, in the city, but like sure. Vancouver's yeah. idyllic, you know, kind of beautiful mix of suburban and, and city areas. So it, it stands out even more and it is more ridiculous that that is where I, I've been accosted to purchase illegal drugs more than any other city I've ever been in. That's There's my Vancouver story. The underbelly. Hmm. So were you were you mostly in a hotel then, Kate? Like No, I'm up here with both my kids and my husband, so we're in a house. We've been we've rented a house. Oh, right on. That's cool. And you know, my kids in preschool, he's going to start kindergarten in the fall. Like we are roots growing Canadian roots. I am ready <laughs> to start becoming a hockey fan and maybe get into saying a boot a uh, mm-hmm. What else? Uh, poutine is a thing that is. Poutine Canadian. is great. Yeah. I've never gravy had gravy and cheese curds on French fries. I'm in. It sounds like too much to me. It sounds like like when First we were... need to go to the corner where you get the weed and then you do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh yeah. If I was if I was stoned, I would not care. I I would certainly eat the poutine, but I can't imagine being like. I need a quick snack. Let me get a cardboard <laughs> tray of fries, about yeah. two pounds of fries, and then um, three generous ladles of brown gravy. But also, let's get some cheese curds on there because I don't think that's enough. Like it sounds, it sounds like the heaviest thing I've ever fucking heard of. I will say that poutine is always something that you crave it and you go, oh, my God, I really want that. And every time I've eaten it, I'm like, it's not nearly as good as what I have in my mind. But I don't remember that the next time I have the poutine craving. Yeah. Also, you guys are missing the whole point, which is that it's like a sharing food. It's like nachos. You don't order the whole thing of nachos for yourself unless you're having a real bad day and you're going to go straight to bed with your nachos. (laughs) Poutine is one of those things where and we can't do any of this. Like you go out with your friends and you're like uh, going dancing or like you're having a fun night. And at the end of the night, you're like, we got to get some poutine, Canadian, eh? And then everyone like eats, you eat like three of the fries and then that's it. Like you're not eating the whole poutine. Don't the fries get soggy? 
No, like it's like a good soggy. It's like a you use a fork. It's a different thing. You're, it's not. It's like a chili cheese fries. You're not like really going there for a crispy fry. You're right, going there right. for like a potato mess. Okay. See, I don't know. I don't know if I would actually. I, I don't know if in practice I would like this. I like. Look, a I don't know what to say to you, man. This is a delicious just, food. You should get I'm, on board here. I'm <laughs> look. I like a. What I'm imagining is like at that point, why am I just not having a fully loaded baked potato? You know, and maybe altering the ingredients to it. If I'm having fries, I like a crispy fry. All right. Know? Well, the border's closed, so you can't have food. <laughs> nope. I don't know, man. There's nothing better in this world. And I'm saying this as a large man who uh, obviously has experience with this. There's nothing better in this world than getting a McDonald's fry and having like the the crispy one and then finding that soggy, salty one at the bottom. Mm. I mean, th- that that's like crack. I, I don't know. I, th- I, I can roll with the soggy fry. No, I got an air fryer. Uh, every time if if my wife brings home like, you know, fast food or something, actually, and this is for all fast food. And this is, you know, this is some advice for all of our listeners. Literally any fast food you can name can be immediately improved by putting it in an air fryer when you get home. I don't care what item you name. Like it will it will rejuvenate it to its just cooked state. Even if you like spent 40 minutes driving home and it's getting cold and, you know, not so crisp in the bag. And also, and this is crucial, it can resurrect Taco Bell the morning after, which is a mm. miracle as far as I'm concerned. Because we, I think we've all probably had like day after Taco Bell when you're like hungover, you bought some, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you bought, you spent $18 at a fucking drive through the night before and you ate $2 worth of it before you crashed out. In the morning, it's all useless. Get that air fryer. Uh, I'm sorry, and you're the man who's eating next day Taco Bell and you're not going to get on board with poutine? I'm just saying that I I think I would like a few bites of it, but I won't. When I'm when I think fries, I want I want crispy fries. If I get my ideal poutine, I think, oh my god, this is my our Canadian <laughs> listeners are going to get so mad. Like, <laughs> like my ideal poutine would be like a basket of very crispy fries, and then all the items on the side, and I could like sort of build it as I go on You're like three just fries of like constructed hipster poutine. No, I'm just like I want to maintain that crispness. I don't think I don't think my my love of crispy fries is necessarily a hipster thing. You know? No, no, no. But you know what I'm talking about when you go to like a hipster restaurant and they take something delicious and they deconstruct it like and it, the fries come in a mason jar and then you've got like a teapot full of gravy and then it's like grandma's teacup has the cheese in it and you get to mix it all together. No, nah, just put it in ramekins. I'm fine. Oh I don't need God. all that. Like, that you and are not on the same page today at all. I'm going to, a, you've been listening. To you've been listening to the poutine cast, and <laughs> <laughs> I just want to add one last thing to that is that there's a there's a couple that my wife and I are friends with, and they were trying to sell us on this this uh, Asian place here in in Austin downtown, very ritzy. And we were out to dinner with them one night, and they were like, "Oh, it's our favorite place in town. Like you'll you'll drop like several hundred dollars when you're in there on dinner, but." my God, it will be the best meal you ever had. And I'm like, well, what's your favorite thing there? And they're like, well, they get, <laughs> to use Kate's example, they're, they're like, it cu- it comes out in like a mason jar and it's like duck, but it's in there and it's been infused. And so it comes out and you like breathe the vapors. And I'm like, when couldn't it just be meat on a plate? Like, I, why does it have to be in a jar? And they're like, well, for the presentation. And I'm like, 
what fucking presentation is this? Like, am I, am I at a farmer's market or, or like a storm shelter? Like, I don't want to eat out of a mason jar, nor do I want to inhale fumes from a mason jar as, as part of the meal. A I have a question, man. Eric. Mm-hmm. Is he always this crotchety? Like, is he grouchy in general or is this a new development? Well, I mean, Scott's a, a lovable grouch. That's his persona. That's uh-huh, true. Uh-huh. He's been building that very carefully for a decade plus, at the very least. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's this is, this is Scott. I like Scott. I, no, I like it when, like he, when he, I just he digs his heels in. I, yeah. Well, I just I'm very textural based when it comes to foods. I didn't try sushi for many years because I was convinced I would hate the texture of it. I fucking love sushi, but there's also been plenty of foods that you know i'm like i can tell just by looking at that that's not going to feel right in my mouth you know mouthfeel is very important to me Mm -hmm. so that brings us back to the poutine thing where i'm like (laughs) it's gonna be mushy you know like i don't want it to be mushy i want i want crisp fries so the the joy of poutine is that the texture changes as you eat it because at the beginning that is they just ladle on all that stuff so the very like first 10% of what you're eating is crispy fries and, and uh, you know, and the, the cheese curd and the gravy and, and all that stuff. And then the, as it sits and as you dig into it, it gets soggier and soggier. So the texture changes as you eat. That's one of the joys of poutine. Indeed. And that's an excellent segue into the title that it brought <laughs> us today, uh, which is, is fire starter. We know that John Rainbird's favorite food is poutine. Oh, so that's, that's, that's the whole reason. God, I can't even go. John. Rainbird, you guys, <laughs> John Rainbird. I, uh, where do we? Mm, okay, well, let's start here. Why did you pick Firestarter? Okay, so when you guys came back and asked if I wanted to do another title, I was super excited because what I what I loved about a good marriage was I think it gives you this secret door into Stephen King's relationship with Tabitha, mm-hmm. and what I love about Firestarter is that it's one of the first six, right? It's Carrie, The Stand, It, Firestarter, and Cujo. And, and yeah, but right. like these first books he wrote before he was famous that get published one after another that are like the greatest hits. But what you don't remember is that during that time he had young kids. And so this is Stephen King dealing with the fact of parenthood, which is that you think your kids are terrifying and wonderful and dangerous, and you would protect them with every inch of your body, but they're also completely unpredictable. And it is, in my opinion, the greatest metaphor for being a first-time parent I have ever read. It's also got all of my favorite King things. It has, um, and this book echoes throughout the King universe, all the way up to the institution, which is sort of Stephen King going, but what if I just did it again, but more? <laughs> what about more Firestarter? Because he fire wasn't starters. Fire starters. But like the shop, we have some of our old King standbys, like, um, you know, misappropriating Indian culture. <laughs> uh, a young dad who doesn't quite know what he's doing, a powerful woman. We've got people in power who are um, alternately evil and dumb. And we've got mm-hmm. just a great rollicky set piece of destruction at the end. And then the movie just goes, meh. 
It's like if fire starter <laughs> is a bonfire, the movie is a Zippo lighter. <laughs> I think that that's about right. Yeah, no, you're 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 not wrong. Uh, yeah, this was published between the Dead Zone and Cujo in 1980. So you're right. This is like prime era, like King just growing into his powers, right? Uh, yeah. In terms of writing, and um, and I do like that you you mentioned the you know this is all inspired by his family because uh, I think that uh, was it Joe Joe uh, Hill mm-hmm. was like the prime inspiration for Danny and in, in uh right. Um, in the shining. And so a lot of that is him King examining his relationship with his young son and, you know, maybe some of the dark areas and, you know, the times he's not happy with his kid and blah, blah, blah. And this one is, uh, examining his relationship with Naomi is his daughter. Yeah. And also don't forget, this is, this is King deep in his addiction. So this is him writing probably either drunk or on pills or on Coke. And so a lot of subconscious stuff is being filtered out here. With, you know, and that's although I I am glad for his sobriety and I wish him continued health. Some of that um, addiction writing, mm-hmm. it's so revealing and so because it goes off on these amazing tangents, like when he's talking to the doctor about the pituitary gland, right? And all I can picture is Martin Sheen talking to that other actor, and they just gloss over it. But in the book, they go into this deep exploration of science and you can just kind of see that he got distracted and was interested in that and just wrote it before he felt like he was writing as Stephen King, right? This is before the creation of Richard Bachman, where he wanted to get away from himself. This is like his purest, most visceral storytelling from a parental point of view, in my opinion. I would like uh, to hear more on this theory of your angle, I should say, not so much a theory on the fire start of the book versus being the parent of your first child. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Oh, of course. So when you have, I guess because I'm still, I'm in it. I have two toddlers. They're not even Charlie's age. But when you have children, all of a sudden you have taken your heart, your actual human heart and put it in a creature outside of your body. Mm -hmm. And it just wanders around and it will grab knives. It will just throw itself down the stairs. It will run into traffic if you don't stop it. It could slip and fall in the bathtub. You literally wake up in the middle of the night just to make sure it's breathing. It is all-consuming and all-powerful. You can't control it. And in the way that King describes Charlie's power and the way that this father has to, the way Andy has to take care of her is a complete, to me, it's a one-to-one. You can see Stephen King going, there is this thing in my life that could just burn everything down. Because as a parent, your biggest fear, like the day I became a parent, my fear was no longer, I'm afraid of snakes or I'm afraid of the dark. My fear is that my children will die before me. That's it. That's the only fear. And I can't, it could happen at any second and my entire world would be negated. My entire world would be burnt down. There would be nothing left if one of my children died. And so, so I completely understand looking at a child and going, like, you're full of the capability to burn it all down. How can I protect you? How do I keep you safe from the world that is chasing you and trying to eat you and take you and change you from this little girl into this monster? How do I do this? And, and as someone who makes a living transforming human experiences into genre, 
films, this is to me the perfect metaphor because it is it is using genre to express a very human and almost mundane feeling, which is that I love and I'm scared of my children. Very interesting. And, and that's something that's, you know, as you said, this book echoes in this, um, this story echoes in uh, all of King's work. And, and I think that the deeper cut here is that this is what really terrifies Stephen King. He's asked so many times over the years, what scares you? And, and nine times out of 10, he gives you a, a funny answer. It's like, mm-hmm. of course, the dark, the monster under the bed, the thing in the closet. Every once in a while, he'll like open up a little bit and he'll say, the only thing that's really scary to me is the death of one of my kids. And in these like, that's, that's the real fear. And you see that that is, you know, that is pet cemetery is him working out you know, that stuff and, and looking at grief and what that would be like and facing his fear in a way that he, you know, he doesn't do very often in his work. You know, most of the times the kids make it out. Okay. You know, the, uh, the kid in, uh, in Cujo doesn't the, the engage right. in pet cemetery doesn't. And every once in a while, when that happens, it, there's a reason why those feel more raw and we maybe a little bit more honest about Jake. Don't forget Jake in the Dark Tower, all the different right. ways he, he deals with that as as King's life goes on. Right. So he wrote that that collection of novels over his entire life, basically. And we start with the problem of a child dying, dying or not dying and the protection of this young child. And and as you get to the very end, we can assume that anyone who's listening here is read. Yes. Generally assume that people listening are well read on the King stuff. We can put this disclaimer now. Uh, if you don't want to know what happens to one of the major characters in the dark tower, maybe hit that skip 30 seconds button a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, he kills Jake twice. He kills him twice in two very different ways and it's dealt with two very different ways. And it's a man in his youth dealing with it and a man in his middle age dealing with it. And I think it's such a beautiful harmony. Anyway, the story of Firestarter is what you (laughs) asked me to do. Sorry. (laughs) Yes. Firestarter is, um, the story of a man and his young daughter on the run. The man, went in his college years, agreed to a clinical trial to be injected with a chemical called LOT6. And during this experiment, he was given uh, a hallucinogenic that awakened some psychic powers in people. He also met his wife during this experiment. She was able to move things with her mind. He's able to what he calls push people, which is a phrase that comes back tons and tons and tons in the King universe, which is to implant suggestions that people listen to. They get married and they have a baby. And that baby is Charlie, famously played by Drew Barrymore in the movie. And it turns out Charlie has the ability to start fire. She has a little bit of... um, telekinesis and pyrokinesis. Am I saying that correctly? Let's assume yeah, so. Right. Yes. And um, there is a big bad called the shop that is now after her because she's what they call the Z factor. If the wife is the Y factor and the husband is the X factor, they got together and created the Z factor and they did want to run experiments. And eventually they capture, they've killed Vicky, the wife, they capture Andy and Charlie, the father and daughter, And they're running experiments on Charlie. It all goes to hell. She burns them all down when they kill her father and lives happily ever after. (laughs) Definitely gets gets to be interviewed by Rolling Stone, which is pretty cool. (laughs) I love how the movie changed. It's in New York Times, by the way. You know, they're like, oh, Rolling Stone. That might not be as reliable as an institution as 
the New York Times. And yeah, like, we need to lend some credibility to this movie at this point, at the very end. I imagine that that will be updated in uh, the remake uh, that they're doing. I <laughs> don't. Kind of fucking up uh, lately. It'll be BuzzFeed. She's going to be interviewed by BuzzFeed. Yeah, really she has her own <laughs> TikTok, a- like uh, the daughter of the terrible Trump woman. And oh, oh yeah. Oh, uh, Conway. Uh, Not yet. Carolyn uh, Conway. What was it Christine? Carolyn Christine Conway. Conway? Was that her daughter? I don't know. Well, we're great, guys. We're great. Yeah, we're we're super on top of it and breaking news here. <laughs> um, I well, keep telling I, myself I, well, I should know I should know the names of more fifteen-year-old girls that I've never met, and I just. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I assure you it is not. <laughs> uh, so something that I'd like to touch on early uh, within the story is what I love about the beginning of this book is that you give these the a lot of these characters really big powers, but they all come at a cost. I love how he limits mm-hmm. Andy's push and and how every time he's using it, he's flirting with killing himself, essentially, that it's going to break something. And when that eventually happens, the way King describes it is really visceral. It's like a wet pull or something that he feels in his brain. And like he, he has a stroke, essentially. Yeah. Um, like, I, I, I always love it when when a, a creator can introduce something fantastical and instantly put limits on it so it's not overpowered. Um, yeah, that said, laying out the rules. Right. Right. And, and it also serves as a, as a counterpoint to the Z factor you were talking about where, where, uh, you know, Charlie didn't start out her life as having her chromosome set in one way and then them altered chemically. She is born this way. So she therefore has more control, more power, uh, and less of the negative effects. And that's why she is so sought after by the shop and why she's so dangerous to, to them and why there is that kind of moral question at the, the center of this going, Yes, she's a person. She's a human. Uh, you know, she's just a little girl. But at the same time, she potentially has the power to destroy this planet. You know, if, if she's as unrestrained as we think she is, like she could be, you know, enough to wipe out humanity, you know, whether she wants to or not. It, it's a really fascinating uh, angle, I think, into the story. And I think it's something that I agree with what you just said. And what I believe is the ultimate failing of the movie because in the book it's constantly you're shown something and then it's explained you know you see him uh losing his mind at the beginning and like not being able to stand up and then about 20 pages later they talk about the pinpoint hemorrhages he's having in his brain whereas the reverse happens in the movie like they're chasing him and you've got this hilarious voiceover like well if he uses it too much he'll probably have tiny hemorrhages in the brain (laughs) (laughs) this is a studio note because they wanted to explain it first. But what's great about Firestarter, the novel is that you're behind the eight ball. Like you're always catching up with the information as opposed to the movie where they're constantly giving you information. And then you're like, well, I mean, of course she's going to blow them all up. She's really enjoying this. And then her hair is going to blow around. Where is that wind coming from? Is that internal wind? You guys, anyone talked about Uh this? I well I think it's it's uh it's like backdraft or whatever right it isn't when whenever the fire is coming it sucks the oxygen up so you get you get a wind thing I think that's kind of the thing they were going like for blowing her hair 
I, I think it can. I, I, I don't mind that part. That part's totally fine. Uh, you know, they, they can have magic, magic wind that is signifying, uh, you know, that she's about to start burning shit. I'm, I, I, I don't mind that too much. I think that the biggest sin the movie does is they completely like contradict themselves with the barriers that Andy puts up for his daughter, um, which I think is so crucially important to their relationship where out of fear as a parent, you know, he is inhibiting his daughter's power, right. By making her scared of it. And the first time that we, we see a flashback of him dealing with, uh, her daughter's power. He's like egging her on to burn a piece of toast in the movie. And like, and this is like, no, you can control it and whatever, but that is so, uh, it goes against what's in the book and th- what's in the book is done so beautifully in that out of fear, he's telling her, you know, you, uh, you're going to hurt yourself if you do this. Cause the first, it, it's not her getting angry and suddenly her mom's, you know, oven mitts catch on fire in the book. In, in the book, she's throwing like a toddler temper tantrum and her own hair catches fire. Right. So she's a danger to herself too. So, and by, you know, by having that aspect of it, it, the moment at the end where he takes all those barriers down in his dying talk to his daughter and, and it sets her free. It so undercuts that moment because he's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can truly let her go because he's the one who put those, you know, restraints on her in the first place. And, and there's something so beautiful about that and about, you know, his dying realization that, Mm -hmm. you know, he can't protect her anymore and it's up to her to protect herself and she has the power to do so. And, and, and he can give her that push, you know, no pun intended to do it. Like to me that, that is the, the reason why you would want to adapt this story is that moment is getting to that moment. And they, they so terribly undercut it by just, you know, wanting it to be, they they contradict themselves and I really they undercut it in the movie and, and that that really kind of pissed me off on this last feeling of it. I think you're absolutely correct in that. And it touches on something that was a problem in genre movie and horror movies and thrillers for a while, including when this was made in the eighties and nineties, which is that you have almost a a split dichotomy because you have them wanting to make a B movie, but this story requires talent that is an A movie. It requires a screenwriter who can deftly maneuver between internal monologue and set pieces. And it requires actors in all the parts, especially in the part of Andy, who can act what you just described. But at the time, this kind of project would never attract that level of talent. And so, but I think with the remake, we might have better luck of, of attracting uh, a more dynamic actor who can do some more of that nuance i'll be endlessly curious what john carpenter would have come up with uh he was you know originally asked to do this but then the thing came out the thing wasn't a big hit and he got basically removed from the project but during that time he had commissioned uh, a script or two that had met the approval of stephen king and i would love to see what you know uh carpenter would have done with some of the visuals here they even get a little bit of like, you know, Tangerine Dream and Carpenter are their own things when it comes to score. But also they're in, in my mind, they're like kind of in the same neighborhood. So I feel like we get a little bit of uh, of a taste of that in the score. But I think the visuals would have been completely different. And not and- just the visuals, the storytelling itself. I mean, that that's the problem with the movie is, is Mark Lester 
who directed it is essentially just doing here's A to B to C to D. There is no interesting plot machinations. There is no interesting reveals or like Kate was saying earlier, there's no hiding information to reveal at a better time. It is just quite literally that way. And did you guys, did you guys know the story of, of how they threw out the, the last, the previous draft that Carpenter had been working on? Mm-mm. Well, I knew they got rid of it, but they got rid of it when because Mark Lester had directed a, a movie called Class of 1984 is a very, you know, oh, it's a yeah. cheesy, fun, fun movie. Yeah. Um, and so apparently they want Dino De Laurentiis wanted a, a rewrite of the script or, or maybe Mark insisted on it. I don't I know the full detail there, but they got to a point where he got one of his writers on Class of 84 to come in and he gives he tells the story of he presented the script to Dino and Dino read it and called him in and goes, uh, th- this is just the book. Th- you just made the book. This is the book. And and he he said, Dino, um, how much did you pay for the book? And he, Dino says, a million dollars. And he goes, well, why not get your money's worth? And he actually just filmed the book. And, uh, and that's a funny story, but it's to the detriment of the movie. Like as we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, this movie is just all, all the parts of the book told in the least interesting way that they could tell it. Right. And you I know, think they're, they're, they they actually didn't shoot the book because the book has has a lot of very in-depth conversations about the nature of this talent, what it means, where it came from, these people, even the shop and Rainbird and all of that. <laughs> and all of that is gone. What they did was they shot the most commercial edit of the book. Yeah, I'm I'm can I'm absolutely certain that Carpenter would have focused more on that. That sort of thing. I also think uh, he would have cast a more appropriate actor to play Rainbird. And we'll get to Rainbird in a second. That's going to be oh. a whole goddamn segment. Uh, it is a goddamn segment. I love it. you, George C. Scott. What are you thinking? We're going we're gonna to use it like a pinata. But before we get there, I want to talk about the shop. I love the idea <laughs> of the shop. in Well, in theory and in practice. I'm curious how you guys feel about the shop, but also like, okay, for those who are unfamiliar, like in early, a number of early King novels, and then much later in uh, The Institute. Yeah. Okay. The shop pops up. But particularly in those early novels, it's a shadowy government organization that's um, basically running science experiments on people and doing fucked up weird shit to them. In Firestarter, they've got Lot 6. And by the way, I just want to point out, I love that it's just called Lot 6. It doesn't even have a street name yet, whatever they're giving these people. You know, it's it's banal. um, Is it the stand also a lot? I don't know. Eric, you re- reread that one recently. Is it true? Oh, don't put this shit on me, man. No, I don't know. It comes and goes. It's it's, but it's got a number. It's whatever virus number it is. I'm not sure if it's a lot because I don't think it's the shop that messed up the world in the stand. There's a lot of king theory theorists that uh, think the 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 shop was responsible for the yeah for the virus. Yeah, Probably but I don't know. They're always explicitly. up to some sort of hijinks over they there. They are. They're the mist. They are the Tommyknockers. They are um, the Langoliers has the shop. But they go away kind of after the Cold War. <laughs> right. Yeah, the the shop is like cat's eye, you know, is, is uh, yeah. uh, the, the Quitters Inc. episode is supposed to be the shop doing mm-hmm. experiments and stuff, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, it's weird. King has these these overall thing where everything in King's worlds are connected. Then he has like these sub categories, these sub genres. And there was a whole sub genre of the shop stories. There's a whole sub genre of Castle Rock stories. There's a whole uh, sub genre of the Bill Hodges stories and and uh, you know and Holly Gibney's stories. Like the, he yeah. works. He he has these phases where he just like hyper focuses on on certain little aspects that he creates, and then he'll kind of leave them you know, put them aside and do something else. And then every once in a while, they'll kind of cross pollinate and pop up again. Right. And I think the shop is like a thing that he was pretty invested in early on and then sort of abandoned that. And then later his two primary focuses became like tying shit into the dark tower world and castle rock stories. Like those became way more of a primary focus than the shop. But I could use a little more shop. I like the idea of this sort of X-Files thing that's going on in the background of yeah. these King stories. And and while we've noted on this podcast before that he is not the best at uh, sticking the landing on science fiction stories in concept, I love the idea of the shop. I would watch a whole TV series just called The Shop. And it's just whatever these fucking weirdos are, are up to on any given day. And to loop back around to lot six. The, the point I was getting to on that is I love the banality of the name of it. It's evocative, but in a really subtle way, because you start thinking about it. And you're like, well, what was lots f- one through five about? Like, what happened with those lots? And then how many were there after that? You know, um, these are really fucked up bad people. They're doing experiments on folks sort of like, uh, you know, the CIA was doing with, uh, you know, hallucinogenics and shit. Like back MK in the- Ultra. I yeah. love yeah. MK Ultra. Love, love, yeah. love, love, love. Yeah, Anyone- I can read about that shit all day. Love it. All fucking day. I totally believe it too. I completely believe that the government was was messing around with LSD at that time. Hundred percent. There's no doubt in my like no doubt in my mind. It's not like a UFO thing, you know, where I'm like, well, I'd like to believe that, but honestly, like, you know. Especially now that we live in a day and age where, like, everyone has a, a fucking high-def camera on them at all times. Right. Like, if, if UFOs were coming down and visiting us by now, like, we would have so much goddamn footage of it. You know, I think there is something going on there, but I don't know that it's aliens. I don't know. I, I just don't know. And I don't really... When I was younger, I had more of an attention span to pay attention to it. Now I'm like, uh, we'll find out one day. Or we won't, and we'll be dead. I bet um, that's exactly how Stephen King feels about the shop. <laughs> when he was, he was like, when I was younger, I was really obsessed with what the government was doing behind closed doors. And now I'm like, eh, I'll figure it I, out. I, I, I think you're right. Like, yeah. what what else is the explanation as to why he would have dropped it as sort of a a recurring theme or a recurring element in his early stuff? There's a Stephen King wikia that I was looking at this morning. I looked up the shop. And was like, what else have these motherfuckers been into? Because I had forgotten that they were even involved with uh, Tommy Knockers, but yeah. they were. They show up at the end. Um, and when you look at like the the shop has appeared in and the, like a list of books, and it all like stops cold, like in the late eighties until um, the Institute comes along. I I, th- I find something very interesting about that. I do. I really, I think it has to do, and I love my favorite type of King discussions are about talking about the man behind the curtain, like talking about the artist behind the art. And I bet it has something to do with either moving into a different phase of your life 
because it's less, as you grow older, it's less about um, a shadow figure out there that's trying to get you and more about like the ticking clock of time that's coming to get you, like death coming. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think we get into Bill Hodges and like passing the torch to Holly and all of this stuff that he gets into later, which is more about the end of things, more about the people around you and less about being chased by something you don't understand. Right. And I, I like that. I also think and not enough can be said about, about getting sober because a lot of paranoid thoughts happen when you're not sober. And I, uh, bet, this is true. I bet Stephen King had some really crazy ideas about the shop when he was <laughs> out of his mind. And that was really fun to write about, but it doesn't quite work when yeah. you're not there. What's interesting to me about the shop is that there is a focus on the bureaucracy in it that a lesser author might not do. In one way, there, it's double-sided here, because in one way, the shop is kind of incompetent. And and they are, are bloodthirsty on one aspect, and then they're uh, weirdly kind on in other aspects, and and so it doesn't really fully gel. So there's that issue. But you know, like for instance, there's a point where they have both Charlie and Andy, and they're running experiments on them. You know, that's the second half of the story, mm-hmm. um, and they're they're trying to get them to to show their powers and, and all this stuff. Um, and then Andy essentially becomes impotent with his power and they, and, and you'd think like the way that they've been set up, okay, they're going to take him out behind the shed and put a bullet in his head, right? They don't need him anymore. Uh, but they, instead they have this whole thing where they figure out how to send him to a compound in Maui. And like at the beginning you're like, Oh, that's just code. That's like sending your, like telling your daughter that you're, you, you know, the, the family dog is going to live on a farm upstate or whatever. <laughs> Right. Um, uh, but they're like, no, we're actually legit. Here's our itinerary. You're going to Maui and going to live out your, your days in a, a fancy government funded retirement village. And it's just like, well, fuck that. This is, this is you were running away from these guys. Like all they want to, you know, they're like, oh, sorry, you're you're not as powerful as, as we thought anymore. Cool. You know, here, go live in, in fucking Hawaii for for the, for the rest of your days. We just want to pump you full of heroin and put you on a beach. And, yeah. and maybe wear a lay from time to time. Um, is that fine? You'd be like, yeah. Is right. that fine? But can wait, that. can we have just a little sidebar about the casual sexism in the shop where it's like yeah, all sure. the women are secretaries, but we need to know about all their legs or their hair color <laughs> or, <laughs> or their busts. Yeah. Mini skirts and, or like they all call them sweetie and darling. It's like, what? But Why? again, like Why early, early, early King was so horny, though, dude. So horny. <laughs> just, just the horniest dude in his glasses, yeah. you know, Jeez. typing away at his little typewriter, just horny as hell, you know. I so just, I, I would be a happy person if I never needed to hear the description of someone like having tumbled down copper burning hair. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. Yeah. Or like, and use that line in the movie, too. I know. Oh, oh my God. Pour one out for Heather Locklear. Mm. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, like what happened to Heather? I thought she was so charming. I really did. I thought she was charming in the part. How do y'all think you would react to being in the shop? Let's say you like one day. You woke up, one, no. Well, I mean, maybe with your luscious locks. You. you <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, that makes the question better. 
Would you rather work at the shop or would you rather be in the shop and fully taken care of for the rest of your life? Even if you were up to something nefarious. I mean, you're up to something nefarious either way. But like, you know, if you had to choose one or the other. I really am a sucker for power. So I think I'm going to work <laughs> and like maybe be like living the more evil version of my own life, like in a power suit and like a little right. nurse ratchet problem here. <laughs> I'm the father. According to the now. descriptions in the book, you're going to have to wear a skirt. But but I but I do understand. What <laughs> That's you're true. What about my tumble down lavender hair? La la la. Well, is it burning <laughs> like copper? Because <laughs> <laughs> if it's not, you're going to be right out. I can see Tabitha reading this and like after reading it, and she'd be like, who has copper hair, Stephen? Who is this red <laughs> girl you love, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, like, there's He's lots of redheads. Yeah, Beverly Marsh is a redhead. Yeah. yeah. What, what's going on there? Yeah, Stephen's first Fair, kiss was a red hair girl. Guaranteed. Like, yeah. yep. this guy's got yep, my heartburns there too. Yeah. Too. This is probably there, why he loves going to Wendy's. When <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I love Wendy's. Wow, they got that. She's got those red pigtails, you know. That's true. Yeah. Uh, if I worked at the shop, there is a danger of me uh, being found out for my cross dressing and that used against me. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> no, I it, that's a, another uh, clumsily handled thing, which is an idea I like, but it's a clumsily handed, handled idea in the book. Um, but, uh, but to, to answer your question, I don't know. I feel like the shop with at least what we see of them doing is a little too close to like the real life version of, of the shop is, is boring and, and just banal evil. Uh, and that's like the separating the, the parents and their kids at the border. Like that's what, what is happening right. in real life mm-hmm. and putting right. them in cages. And and I know if I was, uh, if I, if I was involved in any way of doing that, I couldn't sleep at night and I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So uh, I would, I, I would probably have to be in the the other end where there's a possibility of me just being uh, retiring to Maui. Okay, well, we're not applying the the politics of the shop to the real world, though. I'm saying, like in this scenario, you can choose to have a superpower, but you're going to be contained by these evil doctors. They're not good at containing people, though. Well, they're Isn't not good they at bungle that old. You know what, baby? That's a that's a plus for me because maybe I get to escape yeah. at some point. Yeah, but like we're glossing over the fact that having a superpower is a little overrated in general, mm-hmm. especially if it's causing you pinpoint hemorrhages and people are chasing you and like you can't go out for poutine. You're going to have to go run from the <laughs> men in the black cars, like low men in bright cars. Well, just, here's low, a- low men in beige suits. Kate, I'll yeah. tell you, I, I might not lock, like soggy fries, but you know what I do love is pinpoint hemorrhages. So oh, yeah. this is actually a pretty sweet deal for me. I'm I'm going to be the one of us three that's saying, like, I, I think I would rather I, I think I would have more of a moral conflict experimenting on people. I, I, I wouldn't like that as much as I would like, like having my own little suite, you know, and maybe they come in from time to time. They take some blood and like zap me with a laser or whatever the fuck they do. But I would have to get a rider. You know, I'm going to have to I'm, I'm going to need a TV in there. I'm going to need the Internet. You know? Honestly, as the representative of the shop here, I'm not doing any of that for you. I'm going to pull out your fingernails and watch <laughs> TV where you can't see the TV, but you can sort of hear it so you can't not pay attention to it. Yeah, but I think <laughs> I, I think I could sort of gain the system. And, you know, I, w- I will not be beguiled by your power suit. 
either. I will I will say like these are the things I need in order to work with you. And I think right. the shop would acquiesce to those demands because they want the results. That's true. I we always do that. I do I do think I'd be the person in the shop who gets turned and like helps you escape. I'm I'm very very gullible like that. I have a soft heart. Underneath this power suit made out of iron. I'm also very strong because I'm wearing an iron power suit. Maybe from maybe you throw on from time to time. Here comes the segue. Buckle up. A janitor's costume uh, no! during your work at the, <laughs> at the shop. Let's talk about Rainbird. Let's talk about Rainbird as a character from the book and the movie. Um, so here's where it sucks. Because Rainbird, <laughs> aside from being cultural appropriation on the utmost level, and uh, Red Face when George C. Scott plays him in the movie, the character is an awesome idea. And it should have just been a person, not some kind of Indian mystic. Right. Yeah, because you could well, have his... Mystic, sorry, excuse me. Indian is not right. To say yeah, that. you said that earlier, and I was like, do we want to record that again? But I didn't. So now you're canceled. I'm sorry. No, it's First Nations. First Nations. It's First Nations. I'm so sorry. I'm learning. It happens. It happens. Uh, But you're right. Rainbird is one of the most fleshed out characters in the book. Like, uh, and one of the most interesting bad guys that I think King has written, period. Because he he's a, a man of conflict, right? So he's a guy who both loves this girl in creepy ways and... Uh, but also he's in love with her partially because the carrot at the end of his stick is murdering her. And uh, so it's this really interesting dynamic where both things can be true that he loves this person and he's, you know, wants to kill them. And part of the reason why he loves them is because of what they could possibly give him when he kills him. It, it's a great like center point for a tough as nails, dangerous assassin style character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also creepy. Like I, I, I actually did a little research because I'm like, is it just me or he never is overtly sexual with Charlie? But like when he's describing what, he, like, why he wants a relationship with her to the head of the shop, like that is the creepiest. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm shopping for kids, you know, to be my wife or whatever. Definitely um, in the movie talk. Um, but King was asked about this specifically, and he says. That for sure the def- the undercurrent between Charlie and Rainbird is a sexual relationship on his end. I only wanted what? to touch on it lightly. Well, not not that she would be consenting to it, but obviously that that's that's that what he's a pedophile. Well, that, yeah, you know, there, that there's a sexual aspect to Rainbird. Yeah, like, but like a, se- a sexual aspect to Rainbird's interest in the child. Fuck. Um, and he says, "I only wanted to touch on it lightly, but it makes the whole conflict more monstrous." Is is what he said in an interview with Rolling Stone. Funnily enough, oh. it's uh, I don't know. Give me a second to absorb that. Yeah, I mean that comes across. He's a a disgusting monster, Rainbird in general. I think and he grooms weird. her. Yeah, I think it's weird that Stephen King describes it as a sexual relationship when you know a child can't consent. He should probably you know it's predatory behavior. The man is, Rainbird's supposed to be our big villain, correct? So we're. And we're in the universe where he can be whatever he wants. He's this metaphysical pedophile. And I like that. But I guess it's very disturbing. Yeah. Kate Siegel loves metaphysical pedophiles. Wow, this, is, this podcast Headline. is the end of my public persona, isn't it? Oh, God. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen eventually. But 
he's a great villain because he's not as overt as Pennywise, but he's just as fucking evil. Oh, for it, sure. There are so many. I, I made a note of this. That's a great, a, a great pickup. Uh, this is like uh, King's dry run at Pennywise with his interaction with Charlie. Because mm-hmm. Pennywise, for a majority of Pennywise, is what he does is he doesn't like just jump out as a monster. Like uh, he, there is that that weird grooming. You know, hey, you want you want a balloon? You want all this stuff? It uh, it's the same approach, and this feels like the this uh, uh, what he's doing here with with Rainbird is like kind oh. of a dry run for that. And Patrick Hofstetter, yep, yeah, is that not the same person? But one of but the, the, name, the yeah. most disturbing scenes in it, and that name comes back. Yeah, that's the the scene in it where before the um, refrigerator, it's where the two boys are in the dump. Nope, it for me, it's the refrigerator. I mean, they're both disturbing in their own way, but I have such a, I'm such an animal person. And I read that book very young. And I remember we had a, I may be completely misremembering this and and y'all are free to own me on it if, if that is the case. But I feel like I remember Patrick put a, a, a cocker spaniel into the fridge. Yes. He puts a lot of animals in the fridge. Right. And we had a Cocker Spaniel. I remember what room I was in, in my childhood home, reading this book, like laying on the bed, getting to the part where he's shutting animals in a fucking refrigerator and just torturing them to death by starving and dehydrating them and being so fucked up by it that I put the book down and walked out of the room and that was it for like a week. And then I I finally worked up the nerve to come back to it. But to me, that's the most disturbing thing in any King novel that I've ever read. Like, there's something, the cruelty of it and the the darkness of it. And on Patrick's end, he's so, like, blasé about it. That's tapping into some real serial killer shit. But the, I love that because he, in this, in it, this story about universal evil, Stephen King makes time to spend a couple minutes with the child version of a serial killer. Like it's just, man is so disturbed and genius. I think for me, the one that, that I had to put down and walk away from that I always skip over when I reread is um, in the talisman. When Jake and Wolf are at the boy's home. I Mm. can't, I can't, I can't with that child torture. I can't. Sonny Gardner. Oh, not a good guy, you know, up to some <laughs> tricks. We don't like him. Oh, how, how on earth has there not been a fucking talisman? Actually, we're getting off. We're getting yeah, off. Yeah. Track here. But, um, we, but we should talk a little bit about George C. Scott. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At some point. To, yeah. Let's do it right now. Because, you know, getting back to Rainbird, like what the fuck were they thinking casting George C. Scott in this role? Like, I understand at the time, like probably you know, representation and diversity was not high on their to-do list, but he doesn't even look like, I don't, I would love to have a conversation with someone involved in the thought process of that decision. You know, besides, I can can tell you, I've I've done a little research on this. I can tell you why why they they got him. Uh, Is it because he was George C. Scott? Because that's the only fucking explanation I can think of. Yeah, well, it was, it was Dino wanting to elevate a movie beyond a B movie. He said he really wanted to bring in a list talent. And, uh, and so that's why, you know, Martin Sheen is the head of the, 
the shop. They spent extra money. He went to the studio saying, give us this extra money. And I think specifically George C. Scott was like, they wanted a million dollars. He wanted a million dollars to be in the movie and universal was balking at it. Uh, Dino's argument was like, yes, he might not sell an extra ticket, but him being in this movie will elevate it beyond just the standard horror fair of Friday the 13th or whatever the hell they were talking about Mm -hmm. Um, him, him alone. And they bought that. Uh, So that was the thinking behind it was that they wanted a bigger actor uh, in that role that had the gravitas. And uh, my thought on it is like, you kind of already had that with Martin Sheen. You had, you know, he was the star of apocalypse now for fuck's sake, you know, just a few years before. And Will Sampson is sitting right there. Get the guy from Cuckoo's Nest. You know, he is he is exactly what this role calls for. He's a big, intimidating guy. He's actually a Native American, so you don't have to worry about the red face aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's like that that is that is your casting. Like it is right Maybe in front of you and that money and spend it on an Andy. Poor poor David Keith, not Keith David, mind you. Although that would have been a way more interesting choice at the the time. Yeah, I always, Um, I always, I'll never stop getting the two of them confused. Those names. It's unfair that there are two actors with switched first and last names uh, (laughs) that are that simple. You know, just to be fair, they're both they're both first names too. So your first name and your last name are both first names. The Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott problem. <laughs> yeah, that's also bullshit. Someone needs to look into that and cut it off quick. Real quick, since I mentioned uh, uh, Will Sampson, who was in Cuckoo's Nest, um, uh, Louise, Louise Fletcher is in this movie, too. She was Nurse Ratchet, of course. And it struck me watching this that a surprising amount of Cuckoo's Nest actors have appeared in Stephen King movies. Uh, I, I want to run through a couple of them. There's, of course, Jack Nicholson and Scatman Crothers both appeared in Cuckoo's Nest and then in The Shining together. Oh, Louise Fletcher here. Shining. Yeah, Louise Fletcher here. Um, Brad Dorif was, you I know, was of course, he's Oscar nominated. He's in Graveyard Shift. Christopher Lloyd was in Quicksilver Highway from McGarris. And Sidney Lassick, who was, uh, you know, the guy's like, I want my cigarettes. You know, that that character in Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, he was, yeah. um, he was the uh, principal, I think, in... And Carrie, he's one of the teachers at the very least. And Carrie, he's the one oh, that gets electrocuted shit. against the when are against we the wall. Get the in the mix. That's exactly what I said. I literally have a, a note here saying someone get Danny DeVito into a King movie. <laughs> <laughs> what role in a King thing do you think Danny DeVito could play? The Crimson King, of course. <laughs> oh, so funny. I would love sitting atop a throne of bones drinking lemon <laughs> pillow yes <laughs> um well in talisman the evil the producer who is morgan of oris yes mm. morgan sloped yes yeah sloped would be very good for Danny a- excellent name by the way morgan sloat oh, oh my god <laughs> That's on my list of dream roles is Jake's mom in that is the queen of the bees. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love her. I love that character. And I Somebody's like, got to make that movie at some point. Uh, that's It's just, it's one of the great King, King yeah. and Straub titles that it, it, it's so cinematic. And Spielberg's on the rights for 30 something years. I can't imagine that can't be a, a Netflix show or a, a streaming show or something at some point. It, it has to happen. They don't really make, shows or movies like that anymore you think about the net what you're talking about is a never-ending story type type or dark crystal or labyrinth because you'd need there's so many 
human animal hybrids in the talisman. Right. Clippings and supernatural things to go into the pits of hell. We need werewolves. We need, but like they're human werewolves. We need the the land, the blasted lands. They just, I can't think of a a fantasy show that's doing that. We like it just doesn't. They're not making shows like that. Amblin still owns the rights to that, as far as I know. Hey, I know Amblin. <laughs> okay. Well, I was gonna say, yeah. um, you know, Kate, Make you. It work. You have more pull in the industry than we do. Um, we're we are m- merely podcast hosts. Hold but on, maybe let me one, call uh, Uncle Steve and Uncle Steve and see if we can. Yeah. Well, perhaps two Steves. Maybe one day you'll meet somebody who mm-hmm. is a really good filmmaker what? Um, and has a history of translating hard to translate projects to the screen. That um, sounds like a type of person. Perhaps, uh, perhaps even the, in the streaming realm. Would, would be great, and and a man like that could possibly exist, and and also maybe somebody that could uh you could put in a good word for yourself on on playing the queen of the uh the is it queen of the bees? What the queen fuck of am the I? bees? She's a okay. horror movie actress. That um, oh, that's right. That sounded wrong coming out of my mouth, but I was spelling it wrong in my head. So you're yes. right. <laughs> Movies, but she is her talisman is a bee when she's the queen of the flipped world. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, quick question so, about this imaginary man you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Would he be willing to father my children? I don't know. That's, that's a personal question that yeah, only you, that's you, that's you can work out. Might, yeah. Because, like, at that point, you know, uh, I don't know. He 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 might not be cool on that, but you know, somebody somebody will certainly step up to the plate. I think has and will. <sighs> and also. The fact that no one's doing something like the talisman right now is exactly the reason to fucking do it. Audiences want like serialized. I know I'm preaching to the choir. here. I know that you guys understand this, but audiences want these serialized stories. Now they've proven themselves uh, receptive to, to fantasy material. I mean, people are still Jesus Christ talking about Harry Potter all these years later and Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and, and all that. You throw a little horror in there, a little sci-fi, you know. Uh, I think the bigger issue is probably one of the bigger issues they had with Dark Tower early on is that you, one of the main characters is a kid and you can't shoot, say, four seasons of a show with a kid who's not going to grow up. You know, you can't keep that kid in in stasis. So what do you do with Jack? You know, I, I imagine that's the biggest problem that they're having they would have to do it as a movie almost unless they have a movie or a limited series yeah Yeah. but also jack in the book changes and grows up like they talk about this when he arrives on the west coast that all of a sudden he has a, a a different kind of heaviness to his persona and they call him once again stephen king's slightly problematic with his description of beautiful children um and he's he's a different boy at the end of the journey. So the kid could grow. You could go over the course of a year and and end up with a different Jack. Yeah, Wonder- you could do a you could do a long shoot on that, I guess. Whatever kid you cast in that role is not going to go through like hardcore puberty within the time frame that you're actually going to shoot it. And I think you could find someone within that window of like a year. You know, I think you also bump him up because we're, then we start talking about hours, right? So I think you hire 18 to play 16. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a good idea. And you, just, you have to change Maybe. it. 
I don't know that that to me would be like saying let's make it and and have the losers you know be be like real deal teenagers. I mean, it kind yeah, of the whole one of the it's a coming of age thing. Yeah, it isn't one of the whole points of this is is you know once again King attacking the transition into adulthood and then into mm-hmm. you know being a, from a child I'm into the person. The logistics of shooting a movie when you have something like it and it's the losers club and you can split up a day between five different underage actors versus right. the talisman sits on traveling Jack. Like, and then if he's under 16, you're talking, what is, it? I think it's like six or eight hours total every day. And that's a 14 hour day. So anyway, I'm not, yeah, you're, you're, you're probably exactly right. I, I so we need believe you on that, on that aspect, but I'm just saying from, like, from an adaptation aspect, I'd much rather oh, them shoot, if shoot we, longer. Guys, you're overlooking a very easy solution to this problem and that's you get triplets boom 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 (laughs) right done or you do cgi george c scott and de-age him (laughs) all right i'm with you i'm with you we can use that that sweet lola technology and uh have a 13 year old george c scott be the one traveling he really anything so to loop back uh, around a fire starter for perhaps the last time, how do y'all feel about the uh, the difference in how things play out in that third act versus the movie? It's a it's a little more streamlined in the movie. Yes. Well, y- yes, in general, I think they did well with the limitations they had. Obviously, I prefer the book to the movie, but you know, I thought the effects in the movie were they knew they were going to be limiting. And they couldn't really deliver what was on the page. Yeah. I mean, you can't actually melt people. Imagine them trying to do the melting bullet trick. Like yeah. at that oh, time. Man. See, this is why I'm kind of like, I like the idea that they're, they're doing a remake now. Blumhouse is doing it. This was something I found out about five minutes before we went on. It was that Zach Efron is, is on board to play Andy, which. What? Yep. Not sure how I feel about all that. I actually like Efron as a screen presence. I think he's a little underrated because I think he's one of those guys that's like wildly handsome, but is also a secret weirdo. See also that movie he made with, uh, fuck, what was Harmony, Harmony Kareen's last movie? Matthew McConaughey. Oh, Breakers. No, Beach bump. after that, Beach Bum. Yes. Oh. Like he's in that and he's just going fucking bonkers he's he's one of those like handsome guys who i think is secretly better as a character actor and doing like real hyper weird shit um honestly was andrew garfield busy like andrew garfield is the sweet spot for me for an andy i don't think he also has the right name that's right i only cast actors who have the right name (laughs) (laughs) that's why george c scott will be playing me in in my eventual biopic that's a great um, idea. Yeah, it can be yeah. first or last names. That works for me too. Um, George but I, C. Scott Waffler. But I think <laughs> I think they will I think they will be able to I mean they'll certainly be able to modernize the effects. But yeah. the obsession that Andy has with sort of like, well, we'll we'll report it to the papers and we'll we'll get out yeah. there. Like there's no more of that these days. It would be like a social media thing with people tracking him, I think. And you know, I, I see like a way to update that that would be really cool. And then, yeah, again, the effects will be better. I want to see like a a Blumhouse budget is not, you know, extravagant. 
but I think they'll throw a little bit more money at this one than usual. And I think the whole look of the shop and all that shit will be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the set pieces will be more akin to those in the book. Um, I'm actually really looking forward to that one. I don't know how I feel about Efron as Andy, but I'm I'm willing to to take that ride with them. I'll put it on a must watch list for me. Like I definitely want to see it. Mm-hmm. Right. There's definitely room to grow. And one thing that I I hope that they at least embrace on the same level that that the movie did is how brutal some of the the fire stuff was at the end Mm -hmm. like there's that moment where she sets one of the shop dudes on fire and then launches his ass into a tree yeah Yeah, yeah. and and like i remember watching this i'm you know i'm mostly kind of lukewarm throughout this rewatch and going ah, this is you know clunky it's not really working the emotion's not there drew barrymore is doing you know a, a good job in in that you know you care for and you you know, she shows Charlie's heart and and, you know, I, I can get, roll with that and finding the pluses, the minuses. And then you get to that final segment and you're rolling your eyes at the Wonder Woman style bullet deflections shit yeah. that's going on. Uh, and then all of a sudden here comes this dude set on fire and is launched like a mortar into a tree and you see the body do it. And I'm just like, huh, OK, I can, I can roll with that one. I can roll with that one. Let's I also let's, like let's have- I, what you had said before about her. The moral question of this movie about her being a little girl, but also being uh, a force for ultimate destruction. And I think the ending has to, the ending, her violence has to bring up that moral question. And so I'm not sure the third act of the movie did that sufficiently. Aside from the man launched into the tree. I didn't like, (laughs) we should be like, oh no, we need to kill this girl. Like, I think maybe there should be a bit more of a handoff at the end where you should be scary. She was the, she's the danger all along, not Rainbird. It's it's almost like what they did with Carrie, which I love so much in the movie, is that when Carrie goes on full tilt, you have all the bad people getting killed, and then you have all the good people getting caught in it too. All the people who've been there for the coach lady that was has been supporting her the entire time gets you know damn near cut in half by whatever that riser thing is. Right, right. You know, right. it's like you have to see that that this is why the power is dangerous. You're exactly right on. There should be a character or somebody who's been nothing but sweet and supportive or doing their best to try to help her get through this or whatever, you know, that gets, uh, gets hurt by this. That, that is the whole point of this, this dangerous power, uh, unless the narrative you're wanting to, to show is that she is in full control of it. And she's just an X man now, you know, that knows how to wield, wield it without consequence. But like, to me, that's the boring version of, of the story and this brings up actually i have a, another final question if y'all woke up with pyrokinesis powers mm-hmm. how do you think you would use them on a day-to-day basis would you be good would you be evil would you there i it's would a set party some trick. soldiers feet on fire when they're being mean to their girlfriends <laughs> and they knocked up for sure I'm be with you. You're nothing. But you promised me you'd take care of the baby you're a jerk and i hate you and our kid i'm so alone I think I think I would be like essentially if Larry David had pyrokinesis, you know what I'm saying? Like I would be in line at a a place ordering food and someone's like someone's been in line for 20 fucking minutes and they get up to the counter and they're like, oh, let's see what you got here. When and looking at the menu just as they get to the register instead of having the fucking order ready. And I'd be like, oh, this motherfucker's shoes are getting set on fire right now. Like, or, you know, um, I don't really get aggravated about 
traffic stuff, you know, people pulling out in front of you or, you know, switching lanes or whatever, you know, shit happens. But one thing that really annoys me is when people take too long to, to pull into a parking lot, you know, and you're trying to pull in behind them and there's like cars coming at you, like fucking go in the parking lot. If someone was doing that, I'd be like, one of your tires is going out right now, buddy. If you don't, if you don't hurry up and I'll swerve around you. Same for people that insist on backing in to parking spaces in, in a full parking oh, lot. Yes. And, and those, those people's tires are melted for sure. For sure. Kate, how about you? I think I would use it for mostly pun based humor. <laughs> you know, just like oh, look in hot water now. Bubble, 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 bubble. <laughs> that would probably be it. I would use it to cook too. That would be a fucking rad trick to just be like, you know, take that air fryer. My last, <laughs> yeah, fuck, fuck the air fryer. Your day later Taco Bell. That was perfect. Those those fries are going to be more crisp than you ever imagined. <laughs> but like, but I'm thinking about like how when we moved into the house we live in now, it's got a uh, an electric stove. The last place I lived in was a, a condo that had um, gas, right? Yeah. And that was one of my asks when we we bought a house. Like, I want a place with gas running to it because I think that cooking. I'm big into cooking, and I. I I want to cook on actual flame rather rather than electric. And uh, that was something I just had to give up when we got this place. But if I had fire starter powers, dude, I'd be cooking on a walk again. I'd be doing all kinds of crazy shit. Like you would be such a hit at Benihana. Oh, for sure. Don't even oil up that plate. I got this, you know, don't even oh. flip, flip the switch. No. Now, my question is, are your powers limited to what's immediately around you? Or could you be like watching, say, a, um, you know, a politician on TV saying some crazy shit and then you like to stare at him and your hair floats up and suddenly the microphone catches fire or whatever? Could you could you do that? So you're talking about like across distance, across distance. Yeah. uh, As as long as I can pinpoint it and, and, you know, know and focus exactly on where I want the fire. Well, now we're getting into real dangerous territory Um, (laughs) because of the shop, man. You can't go setting things on fire that the shop is going to know about. No, but that's how, that's sort of how I would ingratiate myself myself at the shop, right? Like I'd be lighting cigarettes for folks, you know. Wow, <laughs> pow, pow, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, you know, light your cigarette, and then I'd be like, "Hey, man, maybe I can get a a bigger TV in this room." Like yeah, that's. I think what I, I, do a, I hit at birthday parties. I do a lot of candle lighting, and then like they blow it out, and I'd be like, "Pow, haha, it's lit again." Right. And I you didn't have to spring that extra dollar for that trick candle. Yeah, I'm helping people out. It's all, yeah, just for humor's sake. I don't think yeah. I would use it to, like, murder anybody or, like, do, like, high crimes with it. But I would certainly be using it for my own selfish needs and and for yeah. people that I, I would take, like, a like a Hannibal Lecter approach to it. You know, where, he, like, he ate the rude. I think I would be, like, uh-huh. the, the fire starter who, you know, sets fire to the rude. In some way, maybe not their person, but their shoes, maybe blow up a belt buckle, you know, these sorts of things. Karma. You'd be you'd be the karma police. Yeah. Really? Can I put in a request for a different superpower, though? Like, this is not a great or useful superpower. I don't know. I feel like I've laid out some pretty great examples of things (laughs) with this power. Successful cooking, although intriguing, um, is not as fun to me as teleportation. 
or even what Andy's power is like the push to me is like the most powerful thing that oh, that's yeah. in this story. And, and it, I know we're running long and we're always, I'm always saying this at the end of these episodes, but one of the other sins of the movie is that they don't really play with the ricochets um, uh, where, where he, when he pushes somebody and he can suggest them to do things, if he pushes too hard, he essentially implants things in their mind that starts getting jumbled and they go crazy. And that is such a great idea. I love the messiness of it. I love like the more you use it, the more it hurts him, the more it potentially hurts who he's pushing. Like all that is, is really fascinating to me. Like that to me is the most under focused upon thing in the movie. And I would love to see whatever the, the adaptation is. The new remake is like, look at that a little bit more. Wait, 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 wait. I think there is something called the shop or a prequel coming out to this. I vaguely remember reading about this. I know we're going from King. Yeah. um, No, no, no. Um, On TV, like a show. Interesting. What is it? Because when I was researching this, there was something. uh, What is it? Oh, look. Hold on. The shop TV show. There it is. TNT. Developing Firestarter sequel TV series, The Shop. Oh, but that was in 2014. <laughs> Probably not happening anymore. <laughs> I mean, there's still involvement, you guys. There's still hope. Also, last time TNT got involved, they got the Nightmares and Dreamscape series. So maybe they're, they're just best left to their own devices and not seeing that one through to the but end. The Daily Dead said they'd keep me posted on updates. <laughs> <laughs> Emailed them. See what's going on. Hey, guys. It's been been seven years. Like, hook it up. (laughs) Well, this was, as per usual, a delight. Uh, This is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they've got coming up. Uh, I I know we talked about Midnight Mass, but Pitch, what do you got? What's coming up? So, yes, Midnight Mass will be coming out next year. Um, And right now, most of my... Wait, next year? Like 2022? Sorry, this 21, October 21. I'm not date 21st, October, 2021. Um, And I have some other stuff in the pipeline. Can't talk about, but I'm really into my book Instagram right now. If anybody, I recommend books to read and Mm -hmm. I would like people to check out my bookstagram just as nerdy as I want to be. K8 loves books. That's my handle because I do. And um, the only King book I've recommended is different seasons because I think that's required reading. So that's the thing I want to pitch today. Well, we thank you so much for for being here today, and we look forward to having you back at some point. Stay safe out there, and and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Kate for coming back and once again sharing her deep well of King knowledge with us. And also uh, bullying me very, very cruelly, savagely, uh, over my fry opinions and my general poutine opinions i i found out just a couple of days ago that it is apparently like poutine week or something in canada i don't know this could have been made up but somebody said this on twitter and i was like oh fuck now i'm at war with canada look i'm not like anti-poutine i'm just saying i have concerns you know we all have concerns in our lives and my concern right now is that poutine might be soggy because the fries aren't crisp that's all I was trying to say. This debate will continue on forever and ever. You're going to get dogged for this opinion. It's fine. I want to try it. I want to. I want to. I, I will try poutine. 
but I'm also not going to eat it from like a Chili's or some shit here in Austin. You know, I want that real oh. shit. I need to come up to Vancouver. What I need is Flanagan. Film something else up there. Invite me out to the set. Take me out to get poutine. You know, I'm not high maintenance. I just need all of those things. And I, I, I'll <laughs> happily, I'll happily give it a shot. They treat poutine the way we treat barbecue here in Texas. In Canada, it's like you can talk to one person. They say, this is the best poutine. And you talk to another and say, no, that's horse shit. This one has the real kinds of cheese curds specifically from this farm. They, they take it real seriously up there. Yeah, that's fine. Um, if, if any of our listeners are Canadian and were upset with me, uh, I respect your ways and your customs. They're very <laughs> mysterious to me. I am I am merely an unfrozen caveman podcast host but i will i will sample upon your poutine when i come to your country i think we spent 10 minutes talking about poutine in the episode and we spent like another three talking about it here in the outro <laughs> gotta love the it poutine cast welcome so next week uh our title next week is the stand once again we are going back into the world of the stand the reason why is because we have somebody associated with the show as our guest. They wanted to take a deep dive into the original novel with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. and uh, it was an opportunity we couldn't pass up. And there's a lot of ground to cover there. Because even in our previous episodes that were stand-ish with the showrunners of the new CBS All Access miniseries and with Nat Wolf, those were more focused, hyper-focused on either the their adaptation or, in Nat's case, the particular character of Lloyd Henry. Totally. But I will say that I'm a big fan. I'm very excited to talk to this person. And also, I would like to congratulate them on having the the balls, ex you know, assuming this person has testicles. But colloquially speaking, congratulate them on having the balls to bring the stand to this podcast. Here today, we have not had anyone come in here saying, I'm ready to talk about the stand. And this is the first person who stepped up to the plate to do it. And, um, you know, I'm I'm excited to uh, to get into it with them. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that the next two weeks on the main feed feature King's longest works. So we, we probably multiple true. thousands of pages of Stephen King over the next two weeks. Very true. And uh, this week, our bonus episode on the Patreon. Well, it's covering the many iterations, sequels, remakes, what have you of Carrie. It's called The Carries. And our guest on this episode is a, a good friend of ours who also happens to be a many, 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 many times over published film critic who is an expert on Carrie-related ephemera. So, oh, I can say the guest name. It's Katie Walsh. It's Katie Walsh. Um, go look her up on, on Twitter. But she comes in and gives sort of a master class on the the various versions of Carrie, which are kind of hard to keep track of because they're all called fucking Carrie. Uh, even I get uh, confused during this conversation, but um, it's good shit. So if you're a hardcore Carrie fan, this week's Patreon bonus episode is definitely for you. And if you are not already signed up on the Kingcast Patreon, what you want to do is go to patreon.com backslash the Kingcast, get signed up now. You will unlock so many fucking bonus episodes commentaries pieces of writing everything we've been doing over there i looked the other day there were 75 posts there is a shit ton of content over there and you can unlock it with about the same amount of money you'd spend on a pack of cigarettes it's great oh and while it's on my mind uh i would like to remind everyone that we are still selling t-shirts 
via the official KingCast store at the KingCast.StoreEnvy. That's E-N-V-Y dot com. You can get three different shirts at this time. We're going to be adding more things as we go. All of them designed by our in-house art director, Mr. Daniel Danger. So if you haven't stopped by there already, picked yourself up a t-shirt, please come by and buy some merch. Yep, absolutely do that. And you can always find us on Twitter at KingCast19. Yeah, um, I also need some people to pay my mortgage. Mm. And um, I have some paperwork that needs to be filled out from my bank. So if somebody could come to my house and offer to do that, that would be cool. Also, I think my dogs need to be let out, and I'm just very tired. So if anyone has time to do that, let's do that. And also, please leave a a review for us on iTunes and rate us and subscribe. I think that's my entire list of to-do items. That's the spiel. Yeah, that's everything you have to do for us. All right, well, we'll see you guys next week for The Stand, and we'll see our patrons this Friday to talk about The Carries. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.